I think we're set. Okay. Mm-mm-mm. Mm-mm-mm-mm-mm-mm. Is that a Honduran? Uh, it's Nicaraguan. Nicaraguan, okay. I do like Honduran, though, mm-hmm. as well. They're some of my favorites. Mm-hmm. Cubans, sometimes I find them to be incredibly harsh, and I get headaches. Wow. And I really like the aroma of a Nicaraguan. Okay. Yeah. But I like Cuban because I can spell it. Nicaraguan's a little bit more confusing. <laughs> so cheers. Cheers, Keys. So go figure. When did I first meet you? This goes back away. So Well, there used to be that Turkish steam bath down in the market. <laughs> yeah. I think it was How did it? I know it was going to start like this? <laughs> Are we allowed to say glory hole? Yeah, no, um, I, I'm not sure. I, I mean, it must have been through dog, I would think. Yeah, so it was through dog. But when did dog actually come into existence? You're supposed to know that better than me. Really? Yeah. God. Did we not just... I feel like there was like this big community type thing that was waiting for Dog FM to come into existence. So, for instance, let's just do it this way. Now, with Dog FM, did you know of the impending you know, birth child of what was going to be Canada's first, or I believe North America's first, 24-hour commercial blues radio station? I didn't really, man. I heard rumblings, but but that being said, I, th- I think I actually wrote one of the letters um, in their favor when they were looking to get their license. Okay. You know, you try to get some support from the community and support from artists. So we heard a rumbling that they were going to try to open this blue station. So they asked me to, to write a letter to, I don't know, to CRTC or whoever, which I did. Okay. Um, I've done that in the past for certain things. Unfortunately, a lot of these things are short-lived, whether it's a TV station back home on Vancouver Island or Dog. But, you know, the th- I, I, I thought that it was perfect for, for, for Ottawa. Mm-hmm. I, th- I really did, you know? Yeah. Oh, by the way, I'm talking with David Gogo right now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm new at these things. Good. So, David Gogo, uh, let me just give you a, a little bit of a pat on the back in regards to some of your accomplishments. Feel free to follow in on the back end and, and fill me in. Juno Award nominee? I have five losses and one disqualification with the Juno. Five. Explain the disqualification. Oh, it was just, it was so silly. So actually six nominations and one was revoked. <laughs> um, it was a, the craziest thing. It wasn't even supposed to be an album that, that got nominated. We, we, we did a live performance at... Um, Deer Lake Park in Burnaby for the Burnaby Blues Festival. And there used to be a guy named Stormin' Norman on Fox Radio out in Vancouver. And he would had a Sunday night blues show. And he asked if he could record our set. And we, we had, um, I think Skeleton Key had just come out at the time. My album, Skeleton Key. And so he recorded the set. They did, we did some interview stuff. And he, you know, packaged it together. And then this is when the interwebs first started taking off. And people started sharing this live recording via the internet. Hmm. And we were in between projects trying to figure out what to do next. But it was getting really popular. So my, I said to my record company, well, why don't we just slap a cover on it and call it David Gogo Live at Deer Lake. We've got four or five songs from the new album, plus some kind of blues covers. I think we did um, a, a boogie and we did a medley. Anywho, we slap a cover on it. It starts getting these great reviews. Next thing you know, it gets nominated for a Juno, which mm. was just ridiculous because mm-hmm. it wasn't even supposed to be. that. It came out of nowhere. But... Then all of a sudden, you know, we announced, we're, yeah, we're nominated. We're going to be in Edmonton for the thing. We book gigs up there. Then they get back to us and go, oh, actually, we have to disqualify you. And the reason being, uh, you cannot have songs that you've previously recorded for other albums on an album that's going to be um, regarded as a Juno-nominated album. The, you know, the criteria being, that way the Tragically Hip can't put out the Tragically Hip's Tragically Hip's greatest hits and be up for a, an album of the okay. year. Okay, okay. So I can understand that. Yeah. But we come back and, well, this is these are all new performances. It's live. Plus, there's songs that we've never put on an album. And so we kind of try to go back and forth. And they just wouldn't, they wouldn't go for it. They said, no, no, rules are rules. We can't change the rules. Mm-hmm. Well, then about a week later, we find out that for album of the year, which is strictly based on physical sales, that um, Nickelback's manager gets a hold of them and, and the Junos and says, hey, how come we're not up for album of the year? We sold more albums than all the five people <laughs> nominated <laughs> yeah, combined. Okay, yeah. Another oversight by the Junos. So then they added Nickelback to uh, that category. So now they got six. So we, so we get back and we go, hey, like, what's going on? You couldn't make an exception for us. Make, you make an exception for them. Oh, well, we didn't want to upset anyone. Yeah. Well, I'm upset. Yeah, what upset Nickelback. Yeah. You know? So it was kind of goofy, but you know what we did was we just turned it around. We did a spin doctor thing, 
we got more publicity out of not being nominated or out of being disqualified than I would have been if, if I'd won even probably yeah. because the, the fact of the matter is the blues categories on the Sunday night, which is the big gala dinner or the Saturday night, actually the Saturday night, there's something like 30 to 40 awards given away in the Saturday and, and you barely get a mention on, on the actual broadcast. But we went on, I think I was on the Vicky Gavaro show. I was um, uh, the national Peter Mandridge. Oh, really? Oh, there's Peter Mandridge, Juno Gaff, you know, and they show, oh, there's yeah. a picture, Shania picture, Chad Kruger, a picture of me, uh, Billboard magazine ran a, an article. So, you know, yeah. so, so at, but the only thing was, I thought, well, I'll never get nominated again because, mm. you know, we've, we've done this mm -hmm. spin doctor. But um, no, I, I've been up, I think I've been nominated three times since. Wow. Haven't won. Mm -mm. <laughs> and and why do you think that is? <laughs> they're fucking with me. <laughs> <laughs> That's it, eh? Fair enough. You know what? I was doing the math in my head while we were chatting. I was at the Bear uh, doing rock for okay. six years. I left four years, 2010. So we would have at least come into that sphere uh, somewhere in 2010, 2011. And I can't remember when I first had you on the junkyard but i know that right away we kind of we oh, hit it off we had okay. some really great chats right yeah. away and i okay. knew that when i was going to be doing this podcast you were going to be one of the people that i wanted to oh, talk cool. to the most yeah well i had a relationship with the bear through kath thompson after my first record came okay. out but that was more like in the early, you know mid 90s than that and she she probably wasn't there then was she i'm not sure you but know what she left i actually just recently saw her yeah uh, she's back in town yeah she's yeah. doing quite well yeah, she's no, doing quite I well. I saw her when she was in Calgary for a bit. She hooked us up and we did a, actually had the whole band come into the station she was working at in Calgary. We did a live performance, which was cool. But I haven't seen her for a while. Okay. Oh, I'm trying to remember the band that she took me to go see. They used to be a rock band. Now they're a pop band. And, ah, shit. Recently? Yeah, recently. They were at the Canadian Tire Center. And, like, they're, maybe I'll just, you know, that's the beauty of editing is that I can just, I can go take a look into this. I haven't smoked in a while, so. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We're smoking cigars and we're having wine. So if you hear like puffing and, puffing and clinks and, puffing. and clangs and all that kind of stuff, that's what it is. Uh, so, you know what? While I look for that, I was telling you before we, we started the podcast that obviously there's an entrepreneurial aspect of what this is like. That's the theme of the podcast. And so many people have probably come to know David Gogo through who you are today, uh, the Juno nods, the disqualification, the Maple Blues Awards, all that kind of stuff. I want to go to way back when, when David Gogo wasn't getting phone calls to play venues or you couldn't get bookings, mm -hmm. all that kind of stuff. Where, where did it start? And obviously... You had to be an entrepreneur for yourself. Nobody yeah. believed in David Gogo more than David Gogo. So what was that process all like? Well, yeah, and, and it, it started hot, and then it got a little bit cold um, okay. after my first record deal went south and stuff. So, I mean, I've never, when I was a kid, I never thought, oh, maybe I'll be a fireman or maybe I'll be a policeman. Like, I always just played music. So I had to figure out a way to make that work. And as a teenager... I'd be, you know, with with a couple other bands. We we would we would go and rent a hall. We'd find out if there was an Elks Hall or a Legion Hall, rent it out, you know, mimeograph tickets or whatever, and we'd make some money as teenagers. Mm -hmm. And then we, um, when I was about sixteen, I guess we we found out that you know bars would hire bands. And back then in Nanaimo, the commercial hotel would you you'd play there six nights a week. Uh, there's a place called Frisco's. You could play there four nights a week. So we were kind of like the Beatles in Hamburg. We just go from bar to bar to bar, and, and that was really how I, you know, got my chops together. Because it's probably like four sets a night, you know. But mm -hmm. but we were making a little bit of money as teenagers. But my dad kind of pushed me. And he said, "Okay, like you know, you're doing well in Nanaimo. What about Victoria? Oh, we get all intimidated Victoria. But then we got to Victoria and realized actually our band's pretty good. Like mm -hmm. they wanted to hire us in Victoria." And the next thing was, well, maybe we could try to play in Vancouver. And by this time, we'd get a bit of a reputation as a kind of a kick-ass little blues band. And um, a guy got a hold of uh, an agent over in Vancouver, so he got us opening up for people like Albert Collins and John Mayall. And they went, well, not only is this band a good opener, but we could probably they could probably do their own night. So after opening for three or four of these blues legends, it, it came to the point where we could like people went, yeah, that band's hot. Let's go see them. And then from there, we toured Western Canada. And same thing back then, all these blues bars would hire bands, kind of a minimum of four nights a week, sometimes six nights a week. So you could actually just go out and, and play and play and play. 
And that kind of snowballed into me getting uh, my first record deal. Things were looking up, but then all of a sudden, the, the record company that just, they completely fucked it all up. <clears throat> and um, it was frustrating because I thought for a minute, and I'm not trying to be uh, mean or, 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 or anything or hurt anyone's feelings, but I thought I was going crazy. And I found out that the, the head of A&R at our record company actually was having mental issues at the time. I didn't find this out until okay. years later. Okay. He actually had to take a leave of absence for his mental issues. So I, and I can never figure out why they'd signed me as a blues guy, but then they tried to turn me into something else completely. And what did they want to turn you into? Well, check this out. I remember at the time, this is like maybe 92, and um, the Archangels had just come up with a record, Charlie Sexton and uh, Doyle Bramhall Jr. And I said, well, this is kind of cool. It's produced by Little Steven. I said, you know, it's still kind of blues rock, but they got some good songs. They're getting airplay. Maybe we could do something like this. And, and the record company came back and said, no, no, you listen to this. And they gave me an album by a band called The Four Horsemen. I don't know if you remember this band. No. Very shortly, it was like a poor man's ACDC. <laughs> and I just, no, seriously. Yeah. And I just listened. I thought, what is this? Why would, they, how would they get that <clears throat> from what I do? So we were just had these battles, you know, like who was going to produce the record. We finally reached a compromise and had a, a guy named Rick Parasher um, in Seattle produce the album. I went down and had a meeting with Rick and we really got along. It was, it was, he was such a sweet guy. In fact, a couple of years ago, I got back in touch with him and uh, it looked like we we're going to work together again. And then he unfortunately passed away, just mm. a blood clot thing. He's only 52 years old. But Rick had produced the first Pearl Jam record and Blind Lemon and Temple of the Dog. But we had a, you know, we got along. So I'm like, yeah, I think I can work with this guy. So that was the compromise where the record companies said, well, you know, you know it's kind of grunge. Maybe it'll be grunge blues or something. We cut some really good tracks that the record company would not approve, which is a bummer. So the first record came out, and, and really, we did all right. We had some pretty good commercial FM airplay across Canada, but all the stuff happened where as soon as the record's about to come out, the, the head of A&R that, is, that had approved me to have an international deal, um, he got fired. So the new guy came in and said, well, whoever that guy signed, we're not going to release them internationally because that guy didn't know what he's doing. Ironically, the new guy that came in, he was the A&R guy that had worked the Archangels record. Mm. So it's just it's the way the record thing works. So we went and toured America with no album in stores, killing ourselves. It was a, it was a real soul killer. You know, I started reading all the Charles Bukowski books and drinking whiskey and trying to solace myself that way. But we had some fun, too. We did some good gigs across Canada and became buddies with... You know, we did do shows with the Phantoms, who were a hot band out of Toronto, and which featured a young Jerome Godbout. Mm. We do shows with Big Sugar. We we did a lot of shows supporting Colin James, you know, and and so we did a lot of good stuff. Okay, and we made it over to Europe a couple of times and supported the fabulous Thunderbirds, played some festivals. But basically, by the time we burnt that out, the record company said, "Well, now you got to either t do exactly what we tell you to do, or you're going to be without a record deal." And I said, "Well, fuck, see ya." Yeah, yeah. Huh? That's crazy. As our kids would say, "Totes cray cray, yeah. totes cray cray." The Arkells. Have you heard of the Arkells? Yes. Do you like the Arkells? I do, from what I've heard. I can't say that I've I've listened to all their stuff, but they're they're pretty kick ass, right? Okay. And so that's interesting. Like, what are the artists that you're really into that are outside of the genre that you play in right now? Yeah. Like right now, like you're like, oh, those guys aren't too bad, or maybe somebody young, up and coming. Oh, I, I quite like the Sheepdogs, but they're pretty classic rock kind of blues. Yeah. And Jimmy Boskill's in the band now. Um, I went and saw this guy Mark Lanigan a couple times. Now, people might remember him. He was the lead singer of the Screaming Trees back in the grunge days. But he's doing some really interesting stuff. And he's, you know, he, he was part of Queens of the Stone Age for a while. He's collaborated with a lot of different people. Yeah. He's one guy that I dig. Now, one of your albums, and I'm not going to take a guess right now because I'm too far removed <laughs> from Dog FM. Uh, but are you a Michael Jackson fan? And the reason I ask is because you did a cover of a Michael Jackson song. Well, I'm a music fan. Okay. So I remember hearing, we, we, we covered The Way You Make Me Feel, and I remember being in a coffee shop back home in Nanaimo, and just hearing the song, and going beyond the layers of the production, because the production was of a time, you know, and, and it was, you know, obviously was, was, was great for them at the time, but when I, when I took out the synthesizers and the gated snare drums, I just heard a blues song. It's a blues shuffle. So I thought, huh, what if... Someone who, what if Michael Jackson was just a songwriter and he'd gone down to Memphis with that song? What would that sound like? 
And that's the way I tried to cut it. We had some horns on there and the girls singing. So I kind of, when I listen to music, I just try to hear the good and everything, or, or, or I, try, I actually try to hear the blues and everything. And not that I'm, I'm a strict purist or anything. I like a lot of different kinds of stuff. But I, I really always hear the blues mm-hmm. in things. And we've covered some funny songs, like we did Depeche Mode, Personal Jesus. We had a, you know, a, that's a great one, by the way. And yeah, we, that's had great. A, we had a pretty good radio hit across Canada with mm-hmm. it. Kind of try to turn it into a blues song. Mm-hmm. The Michael Jackson one, yeah, it's, it's fun to do that. So now let's go back before you even got your first record deal. Okay. When did you start playing music number one? Where you knew music was going to be something that you pursued? Yeah, I've, I've just always wanted to do it. Okay. Like at five years old. It, like I said, just it, it, I never questioned it. I, I never said, oh, geez, maybe I should take up a trade or, you know. You know. Yeah. Um, so where did it go from I'm just playing into a band to where I want to try to make money doing this? Because you had to have some entrepreneurial skill set to make that happen like was it just putting out flyers on the poles in the neighborhood was it just doing shows in your garage in the beginning like how did that start taking form even as a little little kid i think i did kind of what you know like like you'd call it lip syncing these days i mean it was before lip syncing but i think i put on some elvis records and and kind of danced around with my guitar and pretended i was elvis and charged my friends a penny yeah air bands yeah yeah okay yeah and, you know, even even last week, I had my 50th birthday in Nanaimo, and we had a big concert at the Port Theater, and some guy was a little cynical. He says, leave it to Gogo to charge tickets to his own birthday party. <laughs> but it, it, it became when I was a teenager, it's like, you need some bread. I need some I need some money to put, you know, get gas in the car so I can take my girlfriend out. You know, I need some money to buy some hamburgers. So it was like, well, we play music, you know, where can we, we can do that, you know. Rock stars make money, we, we should be able to make money. So, yeah, we started renting out these halls and, um, you know, things were different back then. Now you could never do it. You know, some bunch of teenagers, you know, they wouldn't legally, I don't, I don't think, be allowed to rent a hall. But we would. We'd tell uh, the local um, groups, you know, whether it's the Rotarians or the Moose Lodge, like, huh. we want to, you know, use your hall how much? hundred bucks. And we'd like, okay, well, if we charged everyone five bucks a ticket and, you know, got a hundred people, you know, we'd each make a hundred bucks. And that's what we did. And then, like I was mentioning earlier, then we moved on to the bar scene. But then, you know, once you get into your 20s, then you got to say, okay, how do we really make this work? So after my first record deal kind of went south, it was difficult. You know, so it, it went from, okay, I don't want to flip burgers, I want to play music, to, um, wow, I'm having a hard time even playing music. Am I, I going to have to flip burgers? <laughs> you know? It's, it's true, though. Like, which chain do you want to work at at this point? Yeah. Uh, I like McDonald's. Yeah, so... Um, what I've had to do is figure out because Canada is a huge country and 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 this is it's really the gigs are f- kind of few and far in between, you know it's it's tough and a lot of places that are kind of what they call a routing gig they know that they've got you by the short and curlies and they they don't have to pay you much so one of the smartest moves I made was deciding okay I'm going to have a band in the west and a band in the east and then when I started playing in Europe a band in Europe and then I started developing developing my solo show as well. No, I had the advantage where it wasn't. It was never a band. It was always just kind of me. I was the focus. So as long as the players I'm with are good players, you don't have to take the same band. It's not like the Beatles, and it's all of a sudden John Lennon's touring as the Beatles. And this is something that you did early on in your career. Really early. Really? Okay. And so what gave you that brainchild? Like, what was it about? Was there someone else that was, that was doing a similar thing? Or was that just something that you kind of just did before... A lot of other people were doing it. Well, I'd heard about people like Amos Garrett and that um, doing this similar thing. But I didn't want it just to be, you know, some guys you just met that day. Hey, how's it going? Okay, we're going to play in the key of A and then the key of B. Like, I wanted to play mm-hmm. my own songs. So that was difficult to find guys that would commit to you if you're only going to be out there three times a mm-hmm. year. Or yeah. if you don't necessarily have the name. Like, you're still new. Exactly. Right? Yeah, so, like, yeah. well, who's this guy? So it took a while. I mean, like... I remember, uh, you know, I'm good friends with with Tony D, and he of won- Monkey Junk of Monkey Junk okay. fame, yeah, and Tony D band fame, and he wanted to get out in Western Canada a lot more, and I wanted to get out in Eastern Canada. So we came up with this idea called the back to back guitar attack. I said, "You come out, use my connections, my vehicle, my band, and we'll tour the West, and then we'll reciprocate." Except when I got out here, I found out he didn't really have a steady band. He, not only did he not have a vehicle, he didn't drive. So how long ago was this? <laughs> uh, it's probably almost twenty years ago. Okay, now, yeah. 
<laughs> that's crazy. Well, we we, had, yeah. we did some cool stuff. Like we ended up in the West, um, getting um, hooked up at the end of our tour with Buddy Guy, and we we did I think four shows supporting Buddy Guy out there as the back to back guitar mm. guy. So that worked. But another thing was was getting my solo show together. So there's all these different things you got to figure out, especially if you're just kind of hitting it in Canada, because it's like I say, it's a big country, and there's only yeah. 14 places to play. <laughs> so networking is really something that's important in regards to getting gigs, uh, working with other musicians to break through in areas that maybe you yeah. haven't before. Yeah. Okay. And that's why, like, like recently I, I, I attended the uh, Maple Blues Summit in Toronto. Even though, it, you know, it's expensive for a guy to come all the way from the West Coast to go to Toronto for a week just to be at a convention, mm -hmm. it was really necessary because, same thing, this being a big country... You don't see these people all the time. So if all of a sudden you see a guy who's promoting a couple of festivals in, say, Quebec or even New Brunswick, and he hasn't seen you in two or three years, when he sees you, he'll go, "Oh yeah, go go, you played for us." Yeah, that, you know. You, so you kind of got to do that. You got to. And, and the big thing is social media has really helped with that. Yeah. So what? Give me an example of where that type of networking has really paid off for you. Mm, well, just you can have just some funny little fortuitous things, you know, like 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 show up and 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 see maybe. Well, this happened recently. There was a guy that books some shows in, in the states for some festivals, and I happened to be sitting there talking to Steve Strongman, and he goes, "Hey, two of my favorite guitar players," and I said, "Yeah, you should do a show with us. <laughs> it could be Battle of the Guitars or whatever." You know, just trying to come sure. up with something at the last minute, and he said, "You know what? That might work." <laughs> you know, like so, you just got to be like thinking, um, you know, like just kind of shooting from the hip and 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 just trying to come up with ideas all the time, but. Um, it, it, it's a constant struggle to try to keep your head above water in the music business, especially nowadays since um, streaming happened. I mean, when I first started out, like my first record, was it, it was considered essentially a failure. Okay. But we sold 15,000 copies or something. All right. If I could sell 15,000 copies of my new album, I'd be doing cartwheels right now. Um, but that's back when they had record stores. <clears throat> And that's, you know, people were, were buying it. But now, I mean, I still, I, I, I'm very proactive when I'm doing the shows to come out and meet people. And I make sure I always have my CDs and now, you know, vinyls back. But the big thing is sometimes you play a set, you're, you're pooped. You, you want to sit down for 20 minutes yeah. and rejuvenate for the next set. But the big thing is you can't sit down for two minutes, three minutes, have a glass of water, then come out, meet the people, take the selfies with them, get the Sharpie out, and you've got to sell your own product. Yeah. But that's only, you know, that's on a much, much smaller scale than it was when people just go to a record store. So now we got to deal with, okay, how do we make money from Spotify? How do we make money from YouTube? Mm -hmm. And it's, it's been a real learning curve. Now you really have to, you have to be able to manifest uh, your own destiny, wear all the hats now in regards to... Oh, yeah. Yeah? Yeah, and that's the big thing that kind of, like, gets me sometimes is, you know, I, I, you know, I'll still work with the odd agent... Uh, booking agent stuff but basically I do everything myself and that's a lot of hats to wear mm -hmm. you know so I have to be the manager that decides where we're going to go next um, I have to be the agent and, and be booking the gigs I have to be the publicist so I'm the guy that goes out on social media and does that I have to be the um, the band leader I have to be the songwriter I have to be the person that, that is you know booking the flights and renting the cars it's a lot of hats to wear but I have to, you know, in mm -hmm. order to make it work. Um, but yeah, in regard to the blues thing, that's the problem is that a lot of, there's a lot of shitty blues. Okay. There really is. There's yeah. a lot of really amateur. And that, that Give that, me a name. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> but but that, that became, you know, became commonplace once anyone could make a CD. In the old days, in order to make a, an album or a CD, you had to rent a recording studio. You had to pay for the tape costs. You had to pay for the mastering costs. You had to pay for the manufacturing costs. It was a lot of money. So unless you had someone that was just like a sugar daddy or someone underwriting it, you had to be pretty good to make a record. Now anyone can make a record. Mm -hmm. And so many people just will bullshit about themselves in biographies, and you know, and they'll have a picture with them or something. Or, or the way they phrase things, you know, they'll say, has shared the stage with B.B. King. Well, that might mean that they played at some festival and B.B. King was a headliner two days after they played and they were, like, they were on at 10 a.m. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's funny how really? people do that. Okay. that that's, one, that's one thing that drives me nuts. But... Um, yeah, so 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 nowadays, I mean, 
Yeah, like we were mentioning earlier about record companies. In the old days, if I would come into somewhere like Ottawa, there would be a local guy from the record company, and he'd say, okay, we got breakfast TV, you'd pick me up, we'd drive around, and we'd do some press, and probably the record company would buy an ad in the local music paper or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then people know about the gig, and now you got to do all that stuff yourself, and sometimes yeah. you just can't. And newspaper isn't even what it used to be anymore, <laughs> oh, right? Man. I can't believe it. I just saw like, like yeah, recently one of the one of the, the like one of the main entertainment papers in Edmonton just had to close down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's 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 another thing that we're dealing with. So one of the themes that has kind of stuck with this show uh, through the people that I've spoken to, uh, we talk about quitting. Ultimately, any entrepreneur, uh, musician, I would I would have to think debates whether or not it's just time to throw in the fucking towel and say you know what i'm just i'm tired of this shit Uh, what would be a a little nugget that you could give uh what would you what would you share with them well it's difficult you know i've had people that i've known for a long time like maybe known for 30 years that have said to me over the past couple years man i can't believe that you know after the first record deal and that they said i can't believe you didn't quit anyone else would have quit Hmm. i i can't it's like the warren zevon thing is yeah music i can't Start it like a car. I can't stop with a pistol. I have to do it. Why did they say you should quit? Was that because of the debacle in yeah. regards to yeah, the, was, the it, Juno Nom oh, and all no, that kind just, of stuff? It, like the record, you know, you, you, all of a sudden you're dumped from your record label. Management doesn't want to work with you anymore. The agents don't want to work with you. Um, you know, I was propped up as like, this guy's going to crack, man. He's going to be the next Colin James or whatever. And all of a sudden, it didn't happen. Yeah. But the, the best thing, that, the good thing was, I always had a really good relationship with... The people kind of behind the scenes in the record company, the guys that would pick you up and drive you around to the radio station, the TV stations, never had a pro- I was never a dink to those guys and girls. You know, so I still had that base. And it's funny where people will show up later in the business. Like some guy, hey, you remember me? I was the, you know, I worked mm. for EMI in Calgary, man. Oh, yeah. Well, now I booked the such and such festival. Oh, you want to play town, it? Yeah. Right? Because I was never a dick like that. And through radio, like like we developed a relationship. There's certain people in radio that, you know, they, they like the music I play. So I had that. And I also was lucky enough to kind of get some mainstream rock radio support. You know, a lot of people expected me to quit or they figured, oh, that guy was just a flash in the pan. I was like, no, I can fucking do this and I will. So I put out an independent album called Dine Under the Stars where I just recorded live in Nanaimo. That got me a European record deal. We sold a bunch of records over there. I just wouldn't quit, but because I don't know how to do anything else. Yeah, okay. And I, ha- and I have to do this. I, I can't not play music. Okay. And so would you say then one of the fundamental keys of you still being here are the relationships that you built? Because yeah. I, I'm part of this Facebook group. It's called Bosses Helping Bosses. Yeah. And you see a lot of things that are tied into money. Uh, and money, of course, it's important. It allows you to do what you do, right? So you can tour, so you can stay in hotels, etc. cetera. Uh, but money's not necessarily the end all. And I believe the comment that I shared that I thought that was the most or one of the most important qualities that an entrepreneur has uh, when it comes to their craft is building relationships. Because when the money isn't there, the relationships are going to be the things mm-hmm. That tied you over. If you yeah. didn't have money for a hotel, like how many times have you stayed in a person's house yeah. that you built a good relationship yeah. with? You can't cry into money. Well, you can. Yeah. I, <laughs> that would actually be a trip. I'd love to wipe my tears with money, uh, yeah. but most likely it's going to be uh, a relationship. You said tears, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> You've kept it relatively clean thus far. <laughs> uh, I'm surprised, which is why I'm going to just change direction a little bit. And oh, I, I just want to touch on oh, relationships. Please just, do. Just one quickly. Like recently, I, I turned 50 years old, so we had this 50. Um, 50th birthday party host was Terry David Mulligan that's a relationship that's a guy when he used to have Much West on Much Music featured me when I was 19 years old and he, he hung in there through the thick and the thin and now I'm 50 and he, he hosts my my birthday show wow that's, that's a relationship wild. in the business that's wild and you are fucking old I know <laughs> yeah, this is crazy right it's wild because I look at my my body often like well let's just keep it clean so do I, I- <laughs> But like I look at my arms and my face and stuff like that, and I can't believe like there's a shell that's rotting around my young soul uh, that just wants to thrive. And uh, aging is it's really an interesting thing, but obviously it offers up so much value. Well, I'm I'm lucky that I chose a genre of music where you you kind of get better as you get older. That's right. You know, (laughs) if I was in like I don't know like a new wave band and Nelson, you're 50, that might be a little more. You're not cool. You're not cool any longer. Uh, So. You had mentioned the outrageous claims that people make in regards to association when it comes to their bios and places that they've played. You're the real deal. 
Uh, you have played with some, well, you've played with the best of the best. Yeah. And one of the guys that I want to talk about was someone that you were playing with quite frequently uh, when I was working at Dog FM and someone that you had built up a really good uh, relationship, Johnny Winter. Yeah. Uh, so number one, just speak to how he spoke to you as a musician uh, and then maybe follow up with one of the one of the favorite stories that you can think of from, you know, the tour bus or, or whatnot. Yeah. You know, and, and just the other night, Colin James got me up to play and that was that just meant a lot. You know, so cool that, you know, these guys do that. They're so generous. And that's another you know kind of relationship over the years. And we're, you know, kind of doing the same thing. He's obviously had a lot more success um, than, than I have doing it. But. It, it, we, we kind of feel like we're just two blues guitar players. But Johnny Winter, I mean, he's kind of the same way. Now, here's a guy. Johnny Winter played Woodstock. He's produced records for Muddy Waters. Um, you know, he was a stadium rocker, basically. He was mm-hmm. basically, you know, he's still playing pretty much blues. It was blues rock. I mean, I first saw Johnny Winter. I was 16 years old. Snuck into the Commodore Ballroom in Vancouver with my buddy Mike. and saw him because we loved him so much. And then all these years later, I'm sitting with him in a Winnebago in Glenbro. Oh no, uh, where was it? Glenbro, Manitoba. One of those places in Manitoba. Like sitting in a you know in a, in a Winnebago and watching him smoke menthol cigarettes, talking about Robert Johnson. You know, like you just go, wow, how did it get from that to this? Um, but that's the cool thing when guys that you idolize all of a sudden kind of become your friends and you start playing with them. And um, the Johnny thing that you know that was over decades. I think the first time over Johnny Winter is probably eighty nine, but he was in a pretty bad state then. Um, he was, you know, lost in the ozone, shall we say, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and that continued through the nineties. But when he when he kind of got his act together, and not only Johnny but the people he worked with, Paul Nelson in particular, that started you know taking care of his career, we'd opened a lot. You know, I'd open a lot of shows, and they'd recognize me and go, "Well, this guy's." kind of cool he can either do an acoustic thing or come in with his band they play well they put a couple more bums in seats or maybe convince people oh we'll go see johnny winter but oh gogo's playing too maybe we'll you know let's do it we don't get in the we we don't overplay we don't piss people off we don't overstep our limits and after a while i'd say to these guys you know if we're doing four or five shows i'd say because johnny just wanted to hang out on the bus i'd say to the crew if you guys want to fuck off and go get something to eat or you know go have a nap i'll just sit with johnny because he always wanted to have some someone sitting with him and we got along hmm. and i and the stories i got i mean wow i mean you, you get to talk to him like what was it like to produce a record for muddy waters how did you choose the musicians how did you choose the material hey man what was it like you know you know jimmy hendrix played bass for you while you're jamming at the scene club in new york that must have been a trip and you know it was it was just crazy and, and then johnny is just one you know one of the many guys that i've got to spend quality time with that were heroes. You and know. he was a good friend. Yeah, and, and yeah, it was upsetting when he passed away. We were supposed I hadn't seen him in about a, maybe a year, year and a half, when we were supposed to uh, play a festival with him in, you know, I think it was Sherbrooke, Quebec, and he passed away that week, like mm-hmm. just before we got out there. But we turned it into a tribute to him. But it was funny. It, it, he kind of was a friend, and it was, one, it was one of those things I didn't want to violate kind of the intimacy of it. I remember one time, because I was playing acoustic shows opening for him, and I had my old national steel guitar, and I brought it into the into the into the bus, and I said, "Hey, Johnny, do you want to check this out?" And he started playing these Robert Johnson songs, just just me and him. And it was the first time I saw him really open his eyes, because you know he's a severe albino, so he mostly keep his eyes closed. But he just opened his eyes and he just started singing. It's just like he came to life, feeling this old national playing. And I went, "Wow, he really is just a blues man." And I had my iPhone. And I, I took a quick photo early of him playing a different guitar but when he was playing the national i re- now I, th- I should have just filmed it it would have been cool just to have for me but i didn't want to exploit that kind of that bond you know that we had yeah so that's one of the guys that i really miss i have a, a johnny winter memory of my own and he was quite possibly the worst interview <laughs> <laughs> i ever had in my fucking life it was number one I, it was probably one of the most nervous interviews that I had. Uh, yeah. Number one, I knew that he just wasn't a big fan of just doing interviews. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> another one would be uh, James Cotton. Oh, wow. You know, I was, I was nervous because that was actually, at the point, his throat was really bad. Mm-hmm. And uh, his wife was his handler. And apparently he didn't give out a lot of interviews at the time. So I was, I was really honored. Uh, but 
he gave me one word answers for a solid two minutes. And I'm just like, okay, well, thanks you know, for your time. He's like, yeah, that was it. And so, you know, for you to be able to get beyond something like that on the surface, right? Uh, would you say, uh, did, did he open up to a lot of people? Or do you consider that you're kind of one of those really lucky individuals that got to see a little bit deeper to where maybe he'd share something from the closet? Yeah, I think I, think I was lucky, but because I spent so much time with him. Because a lot of people come in and, you know, yeah, the one word thing. And, I, and in fact, at one point I was um, co-hosting a radio show for a week in Vancouver and Johnny was going to be in town. They said, do you think we could get him on the phone and, you know, do an interview on air? Sure. So we did. And he basically said, oh, hey, David, how you doing, man? I said, good. It's okay. We interview you. He goes, sure. Just give me a minute. And then he like never came back and we we're like <laughs> waiting. And I was like... But but it's because I spent so much time with him, and, and I think that in a lot of ways he was shy. He, he, it, it was really funny with him because I've seen that where people just show up and they go, "So, Johnny, you, you know, you, you you played Woodstock. You weren't on the film or the album, and uh, why was that?" Yeah, we just decided not to. <laughs> that's it, and that's it. Like yeah. you know, but but the, the, when I actually got to talk to him and hang out, and especially I think when it was when it was just the two of us. That's when he'd really open up. And I remember, like, because one of my favorite blues albums of all time is called Hard Again by Muddy Waters. And Johnny had produced that, and he chose the players. And, you know, we, you know and he told me some really crazy stuff. He said, you know, he said, if I could have had my druthers, I would have had Walter Shaky Horton be the harmonica player. But, you know, Walter was a real drinker. We couldn't keep him sober, so we had to get James Cotton in. And um, But he says, you know, I wanted, you know, really wanted Muddy to play more guitar. Muddy, at that point in his life, he'd been through a bad car accident, so... He'd rather just sing, and I was kind of uncomfortable for him to sit and play. But he said, you know, Muddy, we got to get that slide in there, you know. And when you hear those performances, like to me, it's one of the best blues albums ever made. Hmm. So to, for, to get to sit down with him and get that, you know, because I basically produce or co-produce my own album. So I wanted to get the inside scoop, you know, like, like well, you know, what did you do? Where did you play? Why did you choose these certain songs and these certain players? That was fantastic. All right. Best road story. Oh, man. Remember, this is the podcast. You can say whatever you like. Well, it was funny because a couple of my buddies that I used to play with, you know, they're all turning 50. So I go to their 50th birthday parties and embarrass them. Um, oh, goodness. You put me on the spot here. Well, okay. Here's one of the funniest things I've ever heard or, or ever, ever been a part of. Um, my, my first real band that was touring, we were over in Europe. We did a bunch of shows with um, supporting the fabulous Thunderbirds. So we were glad to do it. <clears throat> We had a certain budget from the record company, but you know we weren't making any money, really. Yeah, maybe three fifty a week or so. You're doing it for the association, and they're paying for it, and, okay. and we're, we're getting some exposure. But uh, so we're trying to think of some ways to save some money. So I mean, they feed us at the gigs, and they give us some booze and that. But um, <laughs> so we get a, we had a saxophone player at the time, and he decided we I think we we're going from France to Germany. We had to catch a ferry, so he decided he's going to save some money. So he bought this big baguette. And a bunch of pate. So he just sat there and we had still some, had some beers or something in the van. So he ate this whole loaf of, this whole baguette with all this pate. And that was, you know, he was going to fill himself up with that. And mm -hmm. we were 19, 20 year old guys at the time. Then we got on the ferry going to Germany. And it's like a buffet style restaurant. And um, so there's your three choices of your main. So you can have steak, which is the most expensive. And then chicken, which is in the middle. Then the cheapest was fish. And then you choose, you know, French fries and your vegetables. Sure. So the bass player gets up, puts a steak down, covers the steak with French fries, and then puts a bit of veggies and, and puts the fish on top. So it looks like he's got fish and chips, but he's actually got a steak under there as well. Okay. So I go, well, that's pretty smart. I'm going to do that too. So I do that. Drummer does that. Well, the sax player is completely stuffed because he's eating this whole baguette and all this pate. So he's like, ah, oh, shit, you know? So he decides... Okay, he's, he's get, he had this pastry called a duchy, but he wanted to get away with something like we did. So he had this piece of cheese. So he put the slice of cheese, but he put the duchy on top to kind of hide it. So the three of us that are stealing steaks, we all go through, we, we pay our thing, and we sit down at this table next to the cashier. And the cashier walks up and, you know, with the, I'm sorry, a, a sax player walks up. She goes, just just the duchy? And he goes, yep. The bass player goes, are you sure? And then the guy just gives us this look, like, what? And he goes, are you sure that's all you have? No. And, the, and the woman looks at us, looks at him. She goes, what's under the duchy? And he had to lift up this pastry and show that he was stealing this pathetic piece of cheese. <laughs> but then he's looking at us like, well, does he rat us out? 
Yeah. Or what, you know, because he could rat us all out, you know. Mm. But he didn't. And oh, fuck, he didn't speak with us for like three or four days. He was so pissed off. But it was just a dumb prank by kids. But even now when I see him, I'll go, so what's under the duchy? <laughs> Still laughs. <laughs> yeah. So that's a clean story. <laughs> now give me a dirty story. I want to hear, I want to hear, uh, a dirty David Gogo. Oh no! I had now, to... do a lot of people know about this Dave, this dirty David Gogo well, persona well, of yours? I actually had to, I had to cancel it. I'm going to start a new one. But some, okay. some, some motherfucker. I don't know who it is <laughs> because when I first went on Twitter, like, my, like, like, wait, my Facebook page is my bread and butter. And mm-hmm. it, it's just a music page. I don't do friends on that. I just do the music page. Got over ten thousand people. It really helps. It gets people to the gigs. It helps you get gigs. But I, I'm. I'm real clean on that. I don't. I don't think I swear on it, and you know, I still try to have a sense of humor. Twitter was something new, so I thought, oh, maybe I can um, expand. You know, like like be more of myself. Except yeah. when, I get a call mon- one Monday from the girls at the record company, and uh, she's like, "What the fuck did you do on the weekend on Twitter?" I go, "What? Well, you lost sixty three followers." No way. Yeah. So I went back, and I, and I realized I was waiting for a ferry, and I'd been flying like for you know front back from here. So I was. You know, had, I was rather refreshed, and I thought I was being really funny, but I guess people, a lot of people didn't like it. So I took a little poll. I said, how did people feel about my tweets yesterday? And a couple of people were supportive. They said, oh, fuck it. You know, if they don't like what, what you have to say, then they can follow Justin Bieber or something. But I'll never forget this. One woman said... Well, I you didn't say what the post is yet. It, there was many. No, but I, I need one. You can't just speak... <laughs> You can't just speak passively about it. Well, I need to know what one of these posts were. Well, I think I dropped a couple fuck bombs and a couple things. And then one was, I, I said, hey, baby, how'd you like to have two inches of soft cock? <laughs> so a woman, what? about what? I, I don't know. You, I don't, <laughs> <laughs> you just don't know. Just, it's just something I, I say. I thought it was funny. Okay, yeah, apparently. <laughs> I thought. But I'll never forget this. A woman posted when I asked, you know, what did you think of this, these tweets? She she said, I guess talent and class don't always walk hand in hand. Oh shoot! Yeah, so that hit me. Okay. So I consulted a few people, and uh, uh, I think it was my my, my ex sister in law said to me, she goes, you know, this this is your brand. Mm-hmm. You got to realize that not everyone's going to share your sense of humor, <laughs> and. Uh, so I decided to make this alternate account, and that's where I could put my my, my dirty stuff. But it was still the dirty go go. Like, but you see, keep your name. I'm you, so stupid. You got to be a fucking I, ghostwriter. I, I still had my own name. Yeah, which is I it's guess like I, linked to that, your that, other David Go Go account. That, that, that was my downfall. <laughs> yeah, I just I just didn't think it out. Yeah, so, but, but last year there was there was there was some some person that every time I had a gig. They would get a hold of whoever the organization was and say, "Is this really the person you want to hire?" And they give they give a link to the filthy go go. Isn't that incredible? Wow! And I don't know who it was or what you know what kind of what their reasoning was behind it. You know, they, I must have done something to them at some point, or maybe they just didn't like. I don't know. Yeah. But I finally got to the point where some guy had booked me, and it was for the city of Port Moody or something. He says, "Listen, like like, I'm gonna have to fire you unless no. over this unless you kind of come up with." So I said. So, you know, I said, well, it's not actually me. It's, it's, it, I, it's a friend of mine, but I know I'll ask him. So he had, we actually had to take the account down. Otherwise, I would have lost this, like, it was like a $3,000 gig or something. Yeah. But I will come back. Because a, well, a lot of people were like, like where's Filthy Go-Go? And I'm like, he'll come back. Filthy Go-Go. Yeah, it was That's filthy what go-go. it was. Yeah. Filthy Go-Go. At, at OffensiveDavidGoGo.com. Yeah. Was like, but, yeah, having my own name in it was, was probably. Yeah. Bad branding. Yeah. Bad branding. Yeah. Yeah, because I remember when I got my first message from you, and oh. I can't remember, but it was offensive. Yeah. And I was like, oh, who is this? Yeah. I wasn't sure, because if someone was going to do that, they wouldn't use their own name, and then... Yeah. I, I think one time I, I said something as offensive, David Gogo. I think it's a J.W. Jones or somebody. He's like, what is this? And then I came back as me going, well, hey, I can kind of see his point. And he's like, what are you doing? <laughs> But, you know, but now with Instagram, I kind of, I'm a little more sweary in that because I think that's, you know, it's something different. But with mm-hmm. Facebook, I try to keep it. Um, you know, you swear, you're vulgar, you have thank you. a different kind of a, <laughs> different kind of sense of humor. People that know David Gogo and know the brand, they, they appreciate the type of person that you are and what you bring to the table. Certain people. Yeah. And so I think I had to find the proper forum. But I've been lucky. I think, I think you know, 99.9% of the time, it, it, like you say, sustaining relationships over a you know a long course of time that's actually i wasn't even 
thinking about going down that that rabbit hole. Uh, in regards to relationships, I mean, traveling, and you've been traveling for Lord knows how long now mm-hmm. as a musician. Mm-hmm. Where are you able to find time to make a relationship work? Right? There's a lot of people that listen to this podcast or entrepreneurs trying to balance mm-hmm. work and their family life. I'm going to guess that you are likely away more than the average father, boyfriend, husband, etc. How do you manage that? I, I'm lucky that I have a, I was, uh, my, my family is really super cool. Um, I've got a really strong support base with my family. My son's going to be 20 years old next month. I can't believe it. Wow. But he's been with me his whole life. He's lived with me. Uh, his mother stuck around for, eh, I think, seven years or something and took off. He's always been with me, but he's always, he's not known anything different. And you know, I think that sometimes, and maybe not all the time, but a guy's got a nine to five job. When he comes home, he's tired of working. What does he do? You know, sits down, pours himself a drink, watches the news, he's kind of grumpy, goes to bed. That's not much of a relationship with your kids. Mm. You know, if they want to see you and talk to you. Um, when I'm home, I'm home. And then we do cool stuff. And then it got to the point where he was old enough that, especially in BC, if I book some festivals, I bring him with me. Oh, cool. You know, and he'd sell CDs. We did, oh, we did it back east, too. Um, we did We did it, um, I think I was playing oh, three or four festivals in Ontario. And then we had a couple of days off. So we took the train up to Quebec City and up to Montreal. And we had a really good time, you know. And so so we've got a really strong relationship. Um um, on a romantic way, it's a lot more difficult. Um, I was married for a boot five years, but we never lived together, which is odd. People can't believe that. Um, I thought it would work, but but it 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 didn't quite. So I started dating her twin sister's best friend. <laughs> but <laughs> that's real, right? Okay, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, good yeah. job. And like I say, with the one song ago, I used to date my twin sister's Cheers. best friend and. Um, my, my wife's twin sister's best friend, um, and this song is about one of them. Do you do that a lot? I, I think people often wonder, when people are writing songs, are these songs really coming from real-life events? I don't want to get into like the really vague question of, like, well, what are you thinking yeah. of, or what kind of headspace? But how often would you say that real-life influences a full song that you write not just a line but there's a song that you're writing that takes you back to that moment where you're feeling a very specific yeah. way some of them are full songs a lot of for me a lot of them is just a line or two or it might just be an amalgamation like and I, are those sorry go ahead for my new album i've got a song called too good to be true and that kind of uh, deals with you know you know not being married approaching 50 you want to you know you still want to you know have a relationship with someone but you know, you meet these gals, but you know, when you get to a certain age, there's reasons why people are single. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, I mean, the too good to be true. That was actually an amalgamation of a, of a couple of girls. Um, one that was a serious relationship. One that was just a woman. I went out, I think, for one date or two dates. But I kind of take just the whole emotion. You whore. <laughs> you whore, David. No, 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 no. I did no. not think of you no, as being it, that kind of man. No, we had one kissy. That's it. Yeah. See? No. But... You know, with blues, it's all about experience. So I try to I try to write about what I know. I mean, sometimes I might just be um, me reflecting on life or, or writing down some lyrics when I'm traveling. Um, but you can't help, I think, as you go along, that you know you're going to have to have a bit of your relationship. Mm-hmm. And it's funny, like when I was getting divorced, I actually wrote a real positive song about my ex. But I remember when we first met, hmm. and. Um, it was called "What's Not to Like," and it was when we first met. It was, it's, it's very. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm sure, like when she heard it, or if she even bothered, that she'd know exactly what I was talking about. It was really exciting, like when we first met. It was, and I tried to capture that because you know you don't want it all to be negative. You know, you go, oh, but why were you with this person for the, you know ten years or whatever, married for five? Well, there's, there's, there was some positive stuff for sure, but um, being a blues man, <laughs> <laughs> you have an obligation. Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. wild. Now, one of the things that we used to talk about as well when you were on the radio show is your love for sports. Well, mostly just hockey. Just hockey. It's yeah. just the Canadien. Yeah. And right. what is it that made you, you're a West Coast guy, Yeah. that makes you like such a opposite side of the country team? Was it a certain player? It was for me, but, but the family, my family got into it because before... When it was still the original six, 
when you lived out west, you either had to pick the Leafs or the or the Habs. So my, I think my grandpa said, well, I think we have some relatives in Quebec. And then my dad played lacrosse with John Ferguson, and Fergie got mm. signed to the Habs. So okay. that, so I was already aware of the, of the Habs when I was a little kid. But then Guy Lafleur came in, and, and I just like picked him. And the he, flower. He's the guy. He's the Guy. So, and I, I love them. Like, I'm, I'm just totally into it. Absolutely. I'll watch the odd soccer match. Maybe a lacrosse game, but I, I don't watch baseball or fo- I've never watched a football game. I don't even know what how, how it's played. I'm it's surprised so you never like went to go see an Expos game. I mean, you're a Montreal fan. You have been for life. That didn't make a transition to at least just want to go see a baseball game there. I was, I was aware of Yoki, but uh, <laughs> but no, I, 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 it didn't interest me. But I, I, I really like the game of hockey and I like, you know, and it's funny because last year, um, actually it was right around my birthday last year, I got to uh, be an honorary assistant coach for the Habs alumni. They were playing in Nanaimo. So it was myself and Mr. Steve Shutt uh, were the coaches. Wow. And, and, and it's great because Shutty, I've met a couple times and he actually had some of my music on his phone and and I've met Guy many times, and and it's kind of cool, you know, and these these guys that and and they're they're cool. Like Guy Lafleur, he's been a star since he was six years old, and he handles it very well. Like he's just a really mellow kind of cool dude. And Shuddy was great, but you know, you're getting old when you're 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 coaching the uh, old timers, and you look and you go, I think Stefan Richer is younger than me. <laughs> so that seems like a, a pretty awesome career highlight is there something that stands out above the rest one thing that you absolutely would not if you had to keep just one memory from your musical career what would it be the one thing they couldn't take from you you know i have to I have to divide it into two number one was i got to play on stage not sharing the stage but playing on stage with bb king and i was a young man uh, i was probably 20 years old 21 and that was a guy, like, he's one of the first blues players I ever heard. And for him, you know, for me to be on the same stage as him was incredible. And he was such a kind man and a wonderful man. And that, you know, I, I got to open for B.B. For King three times in my career and, 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 and spent some good time talking with him. It was it was a real, real cool dude. That, and I think the Stevie Ray Vaughan thing, because when I first met Stevie, I was 15, and he encapsulated everything I wanted to be. I was already into blues before I heard about him. But there was, there was nothing happening. You know, there was no contemporary. I mean, even Eric Clapton was, you know, I considered him an old guy then. He was probably only in his 40s or something. BB, you know, all these guys were, were older. Ah, got to yeah, bring up Albert Collins, too. I love Albert Collins. But Stevie was still a young guy. And I went, oh, wow. So a young guy can still do this. And then I got to meet him. And I, I met him several times. And the one time I actually slept on his hotel room floor. No way. And I look back at it now. And it's absolutely ridiculous. If some fifteen-year-old kid tried to like wouldn't leave my hotel room, and I, <laughs> yeah. I, I'd be like, you know, fuck off, buddy. But we were just hanging out, you know, and drinking some beers, and I just I couldn't get enough of hanging out with him. He's my hero, right? And he finally says, "Well, listen, man." He goes, "Like, I got to go to bed." I, yeah, okay. And uh, he says, "It was in Victoria." Uh, BC and I lived in Nanaimo which is about an hour 45 away he goes so don't you, have any, you don't have anywhere to stay I go oh no he goes well he, he actually said this. this this is beautiful he says whoever sleeps in my bed I fuck <laughs> and he says I'm not gonna fuck you he says but you can sleep on the floor and I was like okay I'm so dumb and you know just naive I'm like okay instead of like like just leaving yeah so, but he he got it. Like he understood the the kind of hero worship. Like he probably would have done the same thing if he had met Jimi Hendrix, I guess. So I remember just laying there, and then like about five minutes later, he threw a pillow down at me. You know, like oh fuck, you're not gonna leave, right? No, <laughs> I just didn't because I'm just so you know, just like I want to spend every last minute I can, you know, hanging out with this guy, you know. And but the cool thing with Stevie was the last time I saw him was was very uh, not long before he passed away. And I saw him at the Pacific Coliseum in Vancouver. It was a double bill of him and Joe Cocker. And I got to spend a lot of time that day with him during soundcheck. He was showing me all the guitars and and you know the, the different pedals he was using at the time. Played me um, some cassettes that Nile Rodgers had sent up of the Family Style album that they were mixing with his brother Jimmy Vaughn. I had just come off the road playing some shows with Albert Collins. And it really felt like he really treated me as a peer. And he gave me some really good advice that day. He said, remember when you first showed up? And he said to the bass player, Tommy Shannon, remember this guy first showed up? He was wearing a hat like mine and trying to be me. He says, now you got your own thing. That's what you got to do. You got to have your own thing. 
he says, and you got that now. And that meant so much. And then we went outside, he gave me a great big hug. And yeah, the last time I saw him, he was gone soon after that. So that, that was really important to go from that hero worship thing, like ridiculous amount, dressing like the person. Mm-hmm. And, but he was so tolerant, you know, and it was, it was amazing. But it was cool. It was cool to kind of finally show him, no, I'm doing my own gigs now. And, and what do you consider to be making it? Now, I'm going to speak of an extreme number one, let's say a Nickelback, because we spoke of, of them early, mm-hmm. to where there are songs that you wrote when you were a teenager that now you're singing in a stadium and everybody's singing your song. I think that's a mind fuck. Yeah. So when people tell me about these outrageously famous people that do fucked up things, like why wouldn't you when there are people mm-hmm. praising you like you're the Messiah? Yeah. Right? And... Then we have world-class, talented musicians uh, that I had the good fortune to meet through Dog. You obviously being one of those, uh, to where you have all the accolades, almost all the accolades, I'd say, in regards to what you would like to achieve in blues music or just as a musician. You make your living playing your music. You're not a traveling cover band. Was that making it for you? Yeah. I mean... Not saying it, I mean, wouldn't it be great to be able to play hockey rinks and do that whole thing? That, w- that would be, you know, obviously cool. And I've had the opportunity to open some shows. Like I did some shows with George Thorogood a few years ago. And I'm, I'll tell you, man, that's a feeling when you get up there. But you got to kick ass because like, people might boo you if they don't like you. Yeah. I remember we played um, a hockey rink, I think in Kelowna, BC. And we hit them with three songs in a row without stopping. And they're really kick ass songs. And then I had to turn around and switch guitars. And when I turned around, I heard that roar. That's wow. I never experienced that at that level. But being a blues player, I never expected that kind of success. And if I had had that kind of success, I mean, there's been very few blues guys that kind of break through. Like maybe you have a Omar and the Howlers or something. If you do manage to make it at that arena stage, it's probably going to be short-lived. And I think it would be more difficult to attain that success and then have to go back down to the clubs mm. than just staying at the clubs. I don't know. I've never experienced it. But to me, I realized like maybe in my late 20s, okay, you're not the Rolling Stones. You're not you 2 But my thing was if I can just go to a town and play a club or a venue that I'm, I'm, like, I'm happy with playing there, like it's not some shithole, and, and if, we, if we can pack that place regardless of the of the day of the week and people are yeah people are there to hear my music and hear my band then to me that's success if i if i can keep the lights on at home feed the family buy the odd nice pair of boots <laughs> i'm doing what i want and my dad who um has a cedar sawmill and we have a family christmas tree farm when i was oh god maybe 12 years old or something he was first starting a sawmill business and uh he was trying to show me what, what he was doing and he kind of looked at me and says, you don't care about this, do you? And being a 12-year-old kid, I just said, well, no. And he said, well, you're pretty good at that guitar. He says, you know, if, if, if you can make money at something you like, then that's half the battle right there. You know? Because actually, my son was working for him a while ago, um, planting some Christmas trees and doing stuff. And one day, my son just didn't show up, I guess. So my dad phones me. He goes, how come Lincoln didn't show up for work? I said, I don't, I don't know. I thought he was there, you know? So I go up, and he's not. He's sleeping. So my dad came over, and I'm like, oh, fuck, this is going to be bad. <laughs> but my dad's 73 years old now. But, it, you know, he came in. He goes, hey, Link, what's going on? Oh, just hanging out. He goes, how come you didn't show up for work today? I'm thinking, this is pretty mellow, right? <laughs> and uh, Lincoln goes, well, he goes, oh, I just didn't feel like it. And my dad goes, oh, yeah. I'm like, oh, shit. And then my dad goes, do you know when I don't feel like going to work? When? He goes, every fucking day. He says, you want to work for me, you show up. Otherwise, you don't have a job. Hmm. I was like, wow, okay. You know, and, and, and that's the reality of any, any kind of like, like kind of, I don't want to call it a straight job, but you know, something you're doing um, that you're not in control of. And, but, the, but like, you know, but then again, if I am doing something I like, but it's, it's fucking hard and you don't get um, quite, you know, it, it, the thing about the music business, you can line up a whole tour, but if, 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 if the venue you're playing at all of a sudden they go bankrupt, you, you don't get paid. And, and there's nothing you can do. You don't wake up Monday morning and know that you've got a job to go to. You know, you mm-hmm. got to keep thinking six months to a year ahead of time. And it's, it's, it's a lot of pressure for perhaps not a lot of monetary gain. There's certain times, and the summer festival seasons can be really good. 
And if you're really on it with selling your merch and that. But yeah, to me, success is just, if, if I can just keep going and keep playing the music I want to play, people still like it. I mean, it would be the shits if you if you were just doing it, and all of a sudden, it's, you know, like like no one's showing up, yeah. and and now you got to host the fucking jam, and you know, like like, like that. <laughs> You're you know, that guy. Yeah. Is there anything you change? Don't give me noble shit. Like, really, is there something that you just pull out there? Well, I always thought I'd hate to wake up one day and, and think to myself, "Fuck! If I just tried harder, maybe I could be more successful." But I don't feel that way because I've faced a lot of adversity through bankruptcies of um, of record distributors and management fuck-ups and and uh record you know i've, I've been resilient so I, I don't think i no i don't think there's anything i'd change yeah and and and, and i kind of feel the nice the best thing is the last couple of years i've had people it might be someone i don't know but a lot of time it's been just people you recognize that have been coming to the shows for 20 years or even sometimes people i really respect in the business and they go I don't know what the fuck it is but you're just better now than you've ever been mm-hmm. like it was funny for the 50th birthday as a guy goes Man, I used to see you in your twenties, and we always liked it. But I think you're better now. He says, "Just wait till you're a <laughs> hundred. <laughs> now, here's something cool. I, I've never had the opportunity to ask you this, and what I'm really liking about this conversation that we're having now. And I've kept you on longer than most guests when I was on the radio. You pretty much co-host, uh, co-hosted a couple of uh, shows with uh, shows with me, but yeah. obviously we're limited uh, by time. Now, at your at your shows. You are very mobile. Like you walk off the stage, you go around the entire fucking venue. Do you do number one? I uh, just yes or no. Do you do that everywhere? Yeah. Okay, so you do that everywhere, and then you do a shot. Yeah. And then you use that shot to slide the fucking guitar. Yeah. Where the fuck did that come from? And it's amazing. Well, it, it kind of comes from Albert Collins. Albert Collins is one of my all-time heroes, and I, I you know, I, I should bring him up more often because. He used to do a walk through a crowd. He had, he actually had like a five hundred foot guitar cable. He, he was never wireless. I'm wire. I, I've always been, played a wireless guitar so I can walk around, and be mobile. But that was a big part of his show. Buddy Guy did, used to do it as, as well. But Albert Collins was my real hero because Albert Collins was kind of a lesser known, but he was the most powerful guitar player I've ever heard. He got me up to play with him probably a dozen times. He ran the show, and that was a real inspiration for me. He he drove the bus. He was the man, like you know. And I, I, I'm, I, I, I think he had an agent, but you know, I think in the old days he used to book at the shows as well. But he'd do this walk through the crowd, and there was a point in my career I thought, ah, maybe that's corny walking through the crowd. But you know what? People fucking love it. And you get out there and you shake hands. But I think the shot at the bar. I don't think Albert ever did that. But I'll go up and do a, you know, do a shot of Jagermeister and then play slide guitar with the, with the glass. And it's just fun. The weirdest thing that ever happened, one time a guy, I was doing that, a guy pulled his glass eye out of his head and handed it to me to play slide guitar with. What the fuck? Really? I, I looked at him, I said, dry it off. So he kind of dried it off with his shirt and I played slide guitar with his, <laughs> with his eyeball. Yeah. That is incredible. Yeah. I've, I've done canes. I've done um, ashtrays. I've done salt and pepper shakers. But the eyeball was... Uh, that was the one. Is there one thing that you've tried that just did not work? Um, you can't do a beer can. Okay. They're just too thin, like an yeah. aluminum beer can. Um, oh, I tried my dick once. That's, that's <laughs> <laughs> I got in trouble for that. Yeah. No. Uh, Please uh, tell me that's not a joke or is that a joke? That's a joke. Okay. <laughs> but yeah, the other night at the Rainbow, I did it. It was, it was uh, pool cues and uh, and the eight ball. Yeah. Really? Yeah, yeah. Okay. I've not yeah. seen that one. Yeah, I've not know, seen the, the eight ball. The pool cue... I've learned with the pool cue, you got to look up because if there's a fan and you stick that pool cue in the fan, <laughs> yeah. that, that's no good. You're liable. Gonna, yeah, no yeah. good's going to come of that. Oh wow, this is crazy. It's been almost a decade, and you're sitting in my fucking home. Yeah, that's pretty fucking cool. Oh, smoking no. cigars. We're and smoking having cigars. Having a wine. Having a wine. Yeah, doing a podcast. Hmm. We're living the vida loca. That's it. It doesn't get any better than this. <laughs> it's funny uh, because we're doing this literally at the peninsula in my kitchen. Like yeah. Yeah, I say that on every podcast. <laughs> I let everyone know that this like we're not in some exotic location. Yeah, uh, we're we're in my kitchen, well, but, but it, you're in my home. It makes it better. Mm-hmm. What's your favorite thing to do when you are at home? Um, I, well, you know, I'm always listening to music, you know, and, and I like to cook and um, watch the Habs games with my boy. I like to have people up for dinner. That's a, that's a big thing because you know I travel a lot, so I'll, I'll just say to people, "Okay, we're having a rock and roll dinner," and um, yeah, I like to cook and entertain. That's that's always fun. But music, I don't really play music, but I like listening to music and I like, you know, 
discovering and I, I love watching live DVDs and when people come up for dinner I'll always like I have a Jeff Beck or something going on in the DVD player and cranked up and um, but when you're not touring you don't want to play not really yeah, yeah. turn it off yeah, I, I just yeah, I don't I don't I don't like a lot of guys like that like like I know some guys that come over and they want to bring a guitar and jam and no 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 I did that you know unless I'm in a songwriting mode occasionally like 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 sitting in is, is is okay like like if I go see a Colin James or somebody and he gets me up to sit in well that's cool that's great but that's one song yeah <laughs> you know um, but no it's more listening I think and and just hanging out I like having some laughs drinking wine yeah. A little bit of wine. We have a lot of good stuff in here. Good. There's a lot of fantastic stuff. Good. I generally keep them to 45 minutes. We're like at a hour 20. Why? Was yeah. it that long? Mm-hmm. How many times have you been nominated for Junos in the past, like, five years? Um, quite a few. Yeah. Uh, the last... I think, like, since I disappeared... The, the new album we, we released at a wrong time so we didn't get one for the for this latest you know but my last I think three albums have been nominated wow eh? yeah which is See, nice that's and, and that's the other thing that consistency like so Vicksburg Call was nominated Come On Down was nominated no like two were the last three yeah the last time I won I was super surprised I really didn't expect it and I came out and I was kind of wasn't really hip to who was nominated because I just go anyways but they go okay guitarist of the year and that and, and, Paul Delorier, his band had been winning everything that year. So they did just one bass player, drummer, electric act, album. So they go, guitarist of the year, nominees are Paul Delorier. I go, ah, oh, fuck. <laughs> yeah. And they go, Steve Hill. I go, ah, oh, fuck, because he'd been winning it a lot. And then they go, Colin James. I'm like, Colin James? Like, I didn't even know. And then they said, Tim Williams. I went, ooh, that might be the dark horse, you know? And then me, and, and then all of a sudden I won. I was like, oh, Fuck! Like I really, I had I not prepared anything. It was just totally crazy. So the first thing I could think of was I'd played the night before down in Niagara. It was a, supposed to be Guitar Wars with me and Jack DeKaiser, and some guy came in and he didn't know who I was, and he's like, "Oh, so what time's the show?" I'm like, "Oh, it's, I think seven thirty start." Oh, Jack DeKaiser, man, he's so fucking good. I go, "Oh yeah, Jack's really good." You know what the, the thing I like about Jack? He goes, "It's not just the things he plays; it's the things he doesn't play." And I said, "Yeah." Hmm. You should hear the shit I don't play, right? So I use that for the <laughs> yeah. speech. That's great. So I have a needlepoint thing framed in my kitchen, and it says, "Gaze upon the field in which I grow my fucks, and notice that it is barren." <laughs> <laughs> so people would be at my house, and all of a sudden they'll go, "What?" Like, it just looks at something that you grab zero fucks. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I give zero fucks. Gaze upon the field in which I grow my fucks and see that it is barren. <laughs> So let's close on uh, your your recent album. Yeah, se- uh, 17 Vultures. I'm really proud of it. It's my favorite album so far. Um, why is it your favorite? Um, just the, uh, I think the songs are strong and the performances are strong. And we've kind of, there's not a lot of bells and whistles. I think there's only keyboards on one tune. Plus, I've mixed the electric element of what I do with the acoustic. We've got a couple like really cool acoustic songs, okay. which in the past I've always kept those two separate. I'll either make an acoustic record or an electric record. But this we combine the two and um, it's just kick ass. It's all killer, no filler. <laughs> and if people want to find out more about David Gogo and they should want to find out more about you, where should they go? Uh, tour dates, etc. You can just go to davidgogo.com if you're lame. But if you're really cool, you will join my Facebook music page. Okay. Follow me on Twitter. And I just started the Instagrams. And I'm very active and I do all my own social media. And I think that makes it a much more personal thing and makes people, like the people who do follow me, they feel like they're, they're a big part of it because they are. Well, thank you very much for uh, being here in my kitchen and recording my fourth episode. Thank you. All right, you're you're a top tenner right there. All right, Tom, a top tenner. <laughs> Cheers. Thanks a lot, David. I appreciate Thank it. Thank you.